Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Bernard. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm well, and where are you? At home in uh, Palo Alto, California. In case everyone is listening to this, I'm not talking to a doppelganger. I'm actually talking to Bernard Moon, co-founder and partner of Spark Labs Global Ventures. So, Bernard, we met last year in JFDI Asia for start. How did you get started in technology? Yeah, sure. So I, I had a convoluted career. Initially, I was interested in government and policy, but during graduate school back in 96, 98, which is the first boom times. If, if you could even imagine, it was actually crazier than it is today where like everyone and their grandma wanted to do a startup. Hmm. So it was in my second year in graduate school where two groups of friends approached me to work on a startup. Even though I was interested in government, you know, I guess I had some business experience or savviness that they saw. I mean, my parents were entrepreneurs, so they bounced off ideas with me. And then I was helping out an e-commerce startup and also a video-on-demand venture. And then towards the end of my second year, or when I was graduating from graduate school, I decided to join this video-on-demand startup, which included uh, my co-founders, which for Jimmy Kim, who is also my now my co-founder for the Accelerator and the uh, Global Seed Fund. And you actually worked in this startup, which is on web communications platform called VidQuick, right? And you also served for four years and you actually served as a tenure as the CEO. So that experience as an operator for a startup would probably have shaped you in a certain way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all my startup experiences. I mean, I've been involved in four startups from the ground up, from concept on a napkin to launching and shipping the product. So BigQuick was my most recent one. The first one I described was, you know, View Plus, a video on demand startup. I was involved in a voice portal called Hey Anita. We were backed by SoftBank, actually back in 2000. We were the same class as Alibaba. Wow. So just dating ourselves. And then uh, also involved in a company called Going On Networks, which is a white label. Well, back then it was, it was a little before Facebook, but white label, you could say MySpace or Facebook for companies. And yeah, I mean, each of these experiences definitely, you know, shaped how I view startups and what I could sort of contribute as an investor. How did that experiences translate you to your current role in Spark Labs and also Spark Labs? global investments yeah i mean so our first start of u plus i mean it was just it was just painful i mean it was jimmy my other co-founder peter chang and i who's, who actually is also a venture partner with spark labs global we put our savings into it i remember one night when jimmy and i we were literally signing up for like 20 credit cards online we begged our parents for money i mean it was it took a long time just to raise the initial initial seed capital of 600000 to get our prototype done. So just through all the experience, I mean, later on, eventually, we raised a large round of financing. But through all that pain, you know, especially Jimmy and I were like, any entrepreneur that we come across, we're definitely going to help them out and share our experiences. 
and help them try to avoid sort of the pitfalls that we did. So as an investor, it's sort of like the same. We've, we're just doing the same thing that we've always done since back in like 90, 99, 2000 is give free advice to entrepreneurs, give feedback, give connections, et cetera, freely. But then when we launched our accelerator in Korea in 2012, it was just basically, Jimmy and I were joking around, it's just adding a check of 25,000 U.S., and you know, doing the same thing, and then now with the seed fund, providing larger checks of 250 to half million, and just providing the same thing that we always did in terms of advice and stories and context. How did you eventually decide to work on this startup accelerator, and then at the same time making early stage investments? Yeah, so at that time, I had a family office for three years, and then I wasn't really dealing with technology investments, so I decided to jump back into the startup world. As I was working on a startup, my friend Hanju Lee, founder for the accelerator, uh, he's the one that actually sort of jump-started the idea of, of having sort of like a YC Techstars model in Korea. And he came to me and he approached me and he, and he pitched the idea. And initially I was like, oh, you know, I'm busy with my own startup. I could just sort of advise you. He's like, no, we got to do it together. And then we'll find full-time staff. I said, okay, fine. If it's you and me, let's get a third. Let's ask Jimmy. Kim to be a co-founder and then we'll eventually find the full-time staff. So I called up Jimmy and discussed it and we, th- we all agreed that the timing was right because if it was, if he asked me like five years earlier, if Hanju approached me five, year, or five years earlier, I would have said no because there definitely was a shift at 2012 where more and more entrepreneurs in Korea were thinking more globally and they're also more bilingual and well-traveled and everything. So we just thought the timing was right to launch uh, a globally focused accelerator in Korea. So that's how we launched it. it. I mean, we just got incredible momentum. I remember even like the first month, this is like in March, I, I just emailed like 50 friends in Silicon Valley to be mentors. You know, 40 said yes. And then it was Jimmy's idea to sort of pitch some of my contacts that I knew, sort of like high level advisors. And that's how we got, you know, Mark Cuban, a very public billionaire in the U.S., owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he's on the highly rated Shark Tank TV show. I got Vince Cerf, you know, one of the fathers of the internet to be an advisor. That's because my wife was at Google for nine years. And for two of those years, she actually sat next to Vince. So luckily, Vince liked my wife and he said yes. And then just, you know, it sort of snowballed from there. We got Ray Ozzy, you know, the, per- the founder of Lotus Notes and the person that took over Bill Gates' role as chief software ar- architect at Microsoft and Tom Peters, the renowned business guru, to Michael Crow, my old professor, who is president of Arizona State University. So we just built this momentum. And then it was amazing because like the first class, like all of them, a lot of, a lot of companies applied. They already raised like at least half a million or more. We had companies that already had one to three million in revenue. So we almost ran into a positioning problem the first class where we accepted six companies because the, the first class, if you look at they raised anywhere from half million to three million and they entered our program because they all wanted our help abroad. And so we were like, we found the one bootstrap company. We're like, we got to find a bootstrap company or it's going to ruin the future classes, recruitment. And then so we got a company called We Planet that was bootstrapped. But that was like sort of like the momentum and buzz that we created before our launch and it's continued to grow. Mm. And then from that startup accelerator, you subsequently also created a fund to do the early stage investments. That's why you have Spark Labs and Spark Labs Global. Is that the case? 
Yeah, that that is the case. I mean, so what background story on that is Hanju, Jimmy, and I were thinking about doing a Asia US seed fund. And we were originally actually planning for 2014. And then what happened is in June of 2013, there was Frank Mian. He used to be at Horizons. So he was Li Kai Shing's man for Europe and Israel. And he was the one for Li Kai Shing that identified Siri, sat on their board. Spotify sat on their board. He's the one that sourced DeepMinds that Google bought for like, I think almost like 500 million. Frank, a lot of Horizons deals, I mean, they do the whole range, but they also, I, I think a lot of them are sort of later stage, you know, A, B, and C rounds. He always wanted to do seed. Originally, you know, back pre, I think in the early days of Facebook, when Li Kaixing put in, I think like somewhere on 200 million into Facebook. One of the conditions was that he would he would get the first Facebook phone. So Frank was the one actually at Hutchinson that built the first face, Facebook phone, and his part at Facebook was Nat Jacobson. So that's our other co-founder who's in Tel Aviv now. Nat was the director for international and mobile for Facebook, and so Frank called up Nat and said, "Hey, you know, this is in June 2013. Let's do a Europe, Israel, U.S. seed fund." And then Nat, who I knew even before his Facebook days, he was like. Oh, you know, Bernard and those Spark Lab guys are thinking of doing a Asia-US seed fund next year. Why don't we talk to them now? So that's how, you know, we started talking, sort of dating for like four or five months, got to know each other. And we just thought it just made sense to launch a global seed fund because a lot of entrepreneurs, whether in the US or Europe or Asia, they're all looking to go global and all looking to go into each other's regions. So we just thought the timing was perfect to launch a global seed stage fund mm. so the global seed stage fund is it directly used to fund the, the incubators from spark labs or you can also fund companies that are outside of that incubator yeah so it's it's completely it's a completely separate entity and separate mandate so if you look at our global seed funds the way that we view the accelerator is just another deal source so we've done 50 investments the past 20 months on on spark labs global 20 of them have actually been in the U.S. and primarily Silicon Valley just because we're a new fund. So since we're a new fund, we always want a strong lead. And most of those strong leads are obviously from Silicon Valley. Then it's probably equally distributed between Europe and Asia. Related to the accelerator, we've done seven follow-ons from the Global Seed Fund. But then, you know, that doesn't, you know, that's very, that's a small percentage because there's been 42 graduates right now of the accelerator. And then there will be 50 by this, by this December. But also, I think we've built a, such a strong program that there's no negative thing, signaling. So if our seed fund doesn't follow on, 81% of our companies do get follow-on funding anyways, which is, I think, one of the highest in the world. What do you see kind of the challenges of accelerators and incubators today? Because I think that there are a lot more accelerators and they tend to go into specific verticals. And do you think that actually accelerators help to produce better or greater startups? No, I mean, I, I think the risk for accelerators is higher because it's, it's, it's generally earlier than even seed funds. And seed funds is riskier than obviously like a Series A fund, right? So I think for accelerator, I think it's part, it's not fully pure ROI. A lot of accelerators are also sort of mission driven in terms of helping to build up a, a certain region or city's startup ecosystem. But, you know, obviously it does have to have sort of a minimal amount of good returns for its investors to continue obviously surviving. The overall ecosystem, I would say, and I think a lot of people would agree, it is inundated with accelerators. So I think there'll eventually be a, a sort of weeding out process. Because if you look at most regions or, or urban centers, there's probably just really room for 
you know, a handful, depending on how big that region is, maybe two to four accelerators, because it's all about, you know, deal flow. It's about getting the best deal flow. Some people be- believe that, you know, startups should just yeah. go and start their own companies. They don't need accelerators. And some do. I think it's just 50-50. I think it's just a matter of opinion. Do you believe that actually accelerators can help to produce those great startups? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. Why We, we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't. You know, I, I think the, the split in the opinion is probably just depends on the entrepreneur. But I could say it depends on the, the quality of our program. All 42 companies that have gone through our program, like I said, on average, they raised over 500000 None of them need our 25 k really. They're, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for access to our team and our network. You know, one, that our team is attractive because we're all former entrepreneurs. So obviously there's immediate affinity. There's immediate sort of value that we provide in that sense. And then second, I think now we've built up such a strong rep even outside of Korea. Everyone knows that we have very strong relations relationships with the next stage of funders, whether it's series A, B, C, or even like up to PE firms, right? So, and four out of the six of our partners have been product guys. So it's, I I could say our best evangelists right now are all of our graduates on our accelerator program. And so, so, you know, they could vouch that it was worth it. Mm. How's the program like for the, for these startups in Spark Labs? So it's a standard, I would say, accelerator program where it's three and a half, four months long. It's not really that like programming intensive, like we, we provide weekly seminars, like teaching sessions that last maybe an hour and a half each week. We want our companies to focus on building the company. So we don't make it so much that, that much of a requirement. The, the real, what the real sort of, I guess, like magic happens is interaction with our team, whether it's our full-time staff or the, or the partners. And also because we, we assign four to six mentors. You know, we, don't, we just don't put our, you know, the mentors on our website for window dressing. Every, every one of those are active mentors. If, if they're not active within a year, we'll just take them down for, for that time being. So can you just share a little bit about some of the interesting startups that have came up from Spark Labs? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the companies is Mimi Box. They were doing very, very well. Before they entered our program, they already hit over a million in revenue. Then they went on to be the first Korean startup that entered YC. You know, they got some buzz and fans, fanfare there where they was con- they were considered like was a top three YC company in their class. And then they just recently closed a few months ago, they closed their Series B. It was like $18 million Series B round with Formation 8 and Jerry Yang and some other investors. It was just organically growing well in the U.S. and China and also doing well in Korea. So they're, they're one of the companies that we, we still are involved and help them out, you know, from recruiting to PR to, to their fundraising. Because it, you are actually based in San Francisco, but because of Spark Labs, you have to go to Korea. My first question probably were to ask you is, what are your perspectives on the South Korea startup ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, this. I could say right now that I mean the startup ecosystem is very strong. I, I think that's partly various factors. I mean, there is sort of this startup fever. There's push on top down from the government. President Park is pushing this whole creative economy policies, where they've pumped in. I think it's like, I forgot the last number, like somewhere over $2 billion into the program. I mean, into various programs. Luckily, they haven't done anything really dumb yet. Mm-hmm. Like, like in the 90s or something where some governments were actually doing direct investment. And it'd be like government policy, policymakers making investment decisions. I think at that time, it, it, it's a bad thing because you would be funding sort of bad actors or weaker companies that could sort of hurt the good companies. 
right? So luckily, the South Korean government isn't doing anything like that. They're doing things like matching programs where existing VCs, if, if they pick a company, then they're, you know, they could apply for matching grants. In terms of differences, I guess because you're in the, with the heart of all startup activities, which is the, the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. Compared to South Korea, what are the kind of differences you see in the startups? Like, for example, culturally, how are founder attitudes and culture? Like, I mean, a lot of people talk about Asian culture. What are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, one is definitely just generalizing because we've mm-hmm. seen this with even like Chinese and Japanese entrepreneurs and yeah. maybe some Southeast Asian entrepreneurs where, where they're just not as aggressive. And that doesn't mean like aggressive, like loud aggressive, even like just like ask because that's something that we actually had to even coach our companies on. Like when we assigned them four to six mentors, and all of our mentors are pretty sort of accomplished and senior people, they sort of take this general sort of Asian attitude like, oh, they're busy, I don't want to bother them. And we're, we're like, no, they volunteered, they want to help you out. Don't like be overly sensitive to like asking, right? Yeah. We, we had to coach them on it. And then even what's worse is I call it a double whammy if they're like an engineering CEO. Then like you even see that in Silicon Valley, whereas if it's like a, you know, sort of an engineering CEO that's a little more subdued, not as aggressive, and they, they don't want to ask. So you get that double whammy in Asia where it's like engineer plus the Asian sort of, you know, subdued attitude. Right. Do they also have so that had- local, local, locality mentality where, you know, I'm just only going to focus on this country X? Because I, I don't want to name specific countries, but, you know, sometimes there, there are some people who actually work in that line of thinking no we don't run across any of that because actually the ones that we do select are only ones that want to go global so mm-hmm. we sort of weed that weed that out yeah. already so that's a filter by itself basically yeah yeah like we we've passed on very strong domestic players in korea just because we want ones that you know have plans to go global so then what about infrastructure wise as you compare say silicon valley and Korea. I mean, how do startups interact with corporations? I mean, I spoke to Nathan Miller, formerly from BSSS, and he he told me that Samsung and LG are virtually not in the ecosystem, whereas you can see all the bigger players in Silicon Valley, like Google, Facebook, (coughs) Apple, they're all interacting with the ecosystem i think we might have a slightly different view just because we do interact we we do interact a lot with samsung electronics Mm. and we do have some interaction with like lg and sk planet like i could say like sk planet they've they've been pretty active even in trying to be active in silicon valley right they did last year they did uh their one sort of big acquisition in acquiring uh shopkick and the problem is sk it's like a top i think it's like 80th 84th largest company in the world but no one knows them outside of korea and so that's probably adjustment for some of these chebels is these korean conglomerates that try to enter silicon valley or be more active is that you know they think they're sort of big in korea but no one knows them here in silicon valley but i mean going back to your original point i I think more and more, not just the LGs and Samsungs, but more and more uh, other companies such as like Doosan and Posco, they all want to be sort of more involved in the startup ecosystem in Korea, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, as long as startups know how to sort of navigate and, and sort of be wise, I mean, that's one thing is maybe not that the entrepreneurs in Korea are not that experienced in dealing with corporates or the, know the dangers of it. Because, you know, if you're trying to sell to the corporate and your early stage startup and you devote all your resources to it, it could, it could kill you. 
early on. Let me get to this very interesting report that you have recently released, which is the Global Technology Trends and Startup Hubs 2015. Mm -hmm. So I guess in the report, there are two parts of it. I, I guess the first piece I want to ask is what are the kind of general trends you have, you have observed in this year, particularly in the evolution of technology? I mean, I think overall, people have seen, you know, there, there's definitely this focus on hardware. You know, hardware is, you know, has been sort of hot again the past couple of years. So that, that's continuing with a lot more hardware activity, hardware investments, hardware accelerators, hardware, you know, and focus on even Cisco, you know, saying that Internet of Everything is, is their new focus. You know, John Chambers made that announcement, I think, like, what is it, a little over a year ago. We definitely are also, as a seed fund and even accelerator, we, we do like IoT and hardware plays. You know, we like other areas like 3D printing, but we think that's a little, you know, further along down the line. And wearables is something that we watch, but we are cautious about it just because there's a lot of big players in it. But we've seen a lot of wearable type fitness either watches or bands even coming out of korea and taipei and china but we're definitely cautious just because you know we knew you know we knew that apple was going to launch an iwatch and there's fitbit and then there's you know samsung with a lot of marketing muscle and even lg and then xiaomi on the low end came out with their like 13 dollars like fit band you know there's just a lot of like competition what about unmanned aero vehicles uavs for example drones i i, I saw you mentioning it as part, as a trend yeah i mean drones i think i think it's still early even though so i mean dji i mean even though they're dominant right now i mean i think there's still a lot of room for innovation that it's early so we, we've seen some drone plays we just haven't sort of pulled the trigger on them yet but what about in terms of venture capital trends because I think one of the things you actually did in the report is actually also looking at kind of the rounds that is led by global region. So you're starting to see a lot of Asia having very large rounds of funding in the last year. Something totaling about 4.2 billion. There's definitely a, a focus on Asia for various reasons. Obviously, China just because of its scale. I mean, personally, I think India is a little overheated because everyone's sort of investing on the hope of you know, what could happen 10 years down the road. I mean, just because the population numbers are huge. But I mean, there's still a lot of investment activity there. There's always been sort of, I guess, healthy investment activity in in Korea and Japan. And then, of course, you know, everyone's looking at the promise of Southeast Asia. You know, look at the big numbers of Indonesia with, what, what is it, like 240 million people, third of the population under 25 you know, under 25. So everyone's like looking at those numbers. And even the established tech companies... Indonesia was a battleground, right? I think mm -hmm. the past year and a half were for WeChat, Line, and Kakao, right? Everyone was sort of trying to like capture that market. And more and more we see, you know, we've, we've seen more investments or, and startups coming out of Vietnam. So in our last accelerator batch, we actually took our first uh, Vietnamese company. And then recently, a few months ago, we, we did actually do our first Singaporean investment. Oh, you did? Can you tell, the, tell me about the company? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was public. It was on like TechCrunch. I mean, we, we invested in Dhaka, you oh. know, their Series A, A round. Okay. I happen to know the founders personally because old friends. Anyway, coming back, okay. given, given that Asia now house about, I think, 29 out of the 134 unicorns <coughs> based mm -hmm. on CB Insights data, because I know Crunchbase, as you rightfully mentioned, has about 144. Do you see the late stage funding becoming overheated in Asia? Or is it in Asia, is it more <coughs> distributed? 
in terms of each category of investments? You talk about India being overheated, right? Do you see that happening <coughs> in China, Southeast Asia, Korea, and Japan? That's a good point. I think just, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's not as crazy as the US, but I think overall, I, I think there's a lot of late stage investors that are, you know, as Bill Gurley points out, you know, they're afraid of missing out. So it's just sort of strange activity if you take a step back and if you sort of even at the high level if you know the financial markets it's just sort of weird to me that all these like hedge funds and even mutual funds that are very conservative to even PE funds that are shopping around like you know any company that hits close to a billion in valuation they start like tracking it and trying to get buddy buddy with the CEOs I mean this it's been happening in Silicon Valley like crazy probably a little too much but you know it's happening in other regions of the world too like you mentioned in Asia and so I think it's like uh, you know I think it could be a it, it, it could turn out badly for some companies too mm. and I think Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz pointed out this which is quite interesting actually people are taking money out of the public companies which give them a shorter term horizon and they're pushing it into these private companies which have a 10 year horizon it's almost that they are punishing the the public company so it's actually making it very damn difficult to innovate while these private companies i mean you don't really know the, whether they are going to succeed in in many years from now yeah yeah so it's just it's just sort of interesting it's just sort of interesting behavior by some of these late stage in, investors like pouring pouring money in some degrees it might be even you know you could call some of them irresponsible right because they because they're not as valuation sensitive and they're not thinking, you know, relative to what maybe early and mid-stage investors would think. You know, they're definitely looser on the valuation part, which, you know, could turn out to be, you know, it's definitely overheated and it could turn out to be bad because like for these companies, I mean, example is like the expectation for the next round or for these companies, even though they're private, is now it could be just ridiculous. Yes, correct. You know, they have to meet, they have to meet these expectations of being a, a 10, a 20, a $30 billion company, right? And if you look at the comps of their public, you know, of their public comparables, like, are they really going to hit those numbers in like five years or whatever? Yeah, it's just sort of, it is a little overheated, I would say. So I like one of the interesting things that came up from that report that you have written is something about global startup hubs. And I think you, so I wanted to start off just by asking, how do you, what are the metrics that you use to score these global startup hubs? And what is a global startup hub, of course, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I think a startup hub is, a global startup hub is something that, the way that we ranked it, right, we, we, we looked at the first, like, sort of top 10, right? Those are just probably the most vibrant ecosystems that are producing potential, you know, global unicorns, right? Or, or impactful startups in, in a certain region or world. And we looked at it in terms of sort of like what we would do as more of a top-down approach, right? Because we've seen so many, we've seen so many companies even from like South America to Russia to whatever. I mean, we have six partners. I would say each partner is super connected uh, in at least two regions of the world. Deal flow is not an issue for our firm. And so we sort of get, I would say, a good sense of each of the strengths and minuses of, of, of the startups that come out of a certain region, right? So, you know, we looked at eight factors, engineering talent. We looked at sort of the, whether it has a pay it forward culture, technical infrastructure, the funding ecosystem, and also exits. We looked at, 
the overall sort of startup culture and buzz, you know, the energy within a certain city. We looked at the legal and policy infrastructure, the economic foundation, and also any um, government policies and programs that would affect startups. We did a analysis of that. It wasn't anything like sort of deep surveys, like I think you mentioned the, the compass. compass. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, because it's, you know, they're just taking surveys of startups and what they're looking for. I think we, for us, practically as investors, I think it's better sort of to do a high level approach because you sort of take into effect what really affects these companies. Are they able to go from seed stage to even A to even C to an exit? That's that's sort of the lens that we took it from. And I, I know I know from the Compass guys, they did put a disclaimer that they didn't have enough survey data from certain regions of the world like North Asia and elsewhere. On the other side, you know, I thought it was interesting that they not only missed like Seoul and Beijing and Tokyo, but even Stockholm. I think Stockholm, uh, I'm surprised they didn't get any data from there. Like per capita, they had probably the second most unicorns in the world. Mm. I think seven unicorns from Stockholm, if I didn't recall wrongly, from a couple of, you know, CB Insights data. And very little it was talk about Stockholm as a as a startup hub actually yeah yeah i mean we list six because i think the, the seventh one they, they were including is before 2010 so we just did we just did identify unicorns from 2010 and to the present mm. and so you just come up with this list which kind of i think in asia there are only there is beijing there is seoul and then mm-hmm. there is nothing after that so do you do you, do you see any emerging ones that may come onto this list or could it be just within say China like for example the Shenzhen because of all the hardware activity that is going on or maybe even Japan that's beginning yeah. to start to get interesting yeah I, I think Tokyo definitely has the potential I mean they don't have that many unicorns but there's there's definitely sort of exit activity I mean smaller than they do like these smaller interesting like sort of public IPOs right mm. there's definitely a lot of funding activity in, in Shanghai. Mm. A lot of these, Shanghai and like you mentioned, Shenzhen. I mean, China just overall is just, you know, it, it is an active market. The question is also whether how the overall economy will affect them and whether it's a bubble there too. I mean, Chinese now, the economy is having a little bit of a wobble. Do you think that that will also impact to its own startup ecosystem from from that perspective? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I think o- overall there will be effect just because a lot of the money that went into startups, you know, came from other sources. It could be like, example, like real estate money. Once, you know, the once the bubble pops there or, or people sort of lose liquidity in those areas, I mean, you know, certain cities in certain cities in China might not be that well-funded anymore. I think Beijing will still be there just because it has all the engineering talent. My kind of penultimate question is, I mean, uh, these rankings are always changing. I think because all these startup ecosystems are evolving. So I don't look at the rankings. I kind of looking at how they evolved. Do you see that more and more startup hubs would eventually evolve towards where their core competencies are? I mean, there could be only maybe only one or two global startup hubs in the sense of they can cover everything, but you're starting to see certain verticals becoming more and more prominent. I mean, I, I talk about London. London is a very interesting place. They are actually moving a lot more in fintech. I think Singapore is exactly doing exactly the same. In fact, I see more fintech activity happening lately because they are the financial centers. Do you see that kind of trend happening 
Or is it still going to be just a hub? There is a certain infrastructure. There are certain angel investors living there. There is certain VC activity and there is certain major corporation. I think it overall is trending towards a good thing because, you know, it's even our thesis that strong or excellent entrepreneurs can be found everywhere. So there's definitely through the internet, through just events and sharing online, information is becoming quickly shared and dispersed. The difficult thing to recognize to replicate is the culture part, but other, uh, but otherwise, like the, the talent is also growing across the globe. But do you see specific verticals will emerge from certain startup hubs? Yeah, I think it'll get there. It just depends on if if each area is able to fill fill the gap. So, like you mentioned, London. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very we're very active in London in the fintech scene. Initially, for the Barclays Accelerator, there we were the only follow on seed fund, and our and our partner and co founder Frank Mian, he's been very active with Barclays and FinTech. Mm. But, you know, we've gone now through two two classes with the Barclays guys. And I was I will say I'm surprised by the amount of money and finance and hedge fund people there, like almost similar to New York. There isn't that many angel investing activity. Even though there's all this hype that London is a, is a FinTech startup, you know, center, a lot of the graduates of Barclays which are supposedly some of the better fintech startups in London, they had a hard time like raising like angel rounds. And so it's interesting. I think a lot of finance people in New York that are active in the angel scene, you don't see that in London yet. I think they're still more conservative. So there's actually also a cultural attitude difference. So here comes my last question. How do my audience find you with it? They could email me. They could email me or find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. My email is bernard at sparklabsglobal.com. So feel free to email me or follow me on Twitter. It's just Bernard Moon. Mm. And you can find me at blungcw or at bernardleung.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please leave a rating, five star, and of course, send us your feedback. And once again, uh, Bernard, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun.